Carol Robb is a recovering investment banker, entrepreneur, TV pundit and host, speaker, economic, business, and financial commentator, content developer, and New York Times best-selling author. Her books include The Entrepreneur Equation, The War on Small Business, and her new book, You Will Own Nothing, is out July 18, 2023. Carol has worked in a variety of capacities across industries, including currently as an outsourced chief customer officer, CCO, as a director on public and private company boards, and as a strategic advisor and C-level concierge. Carol connects the dots on financial, business, and economic issues for novice and pro audiences alike. He's also the creator of the Future File Legacy Planning System and software, futurefile.com. Carol advocates for small business, small government, and big hair, coming from a blue-collar family. Carol has worked to seize the American dream and is fighting to preserve that opportunity for all Americans. Please welcome Carol Roth. Welcome, everybody, to Money 911, where we talk about health, wealth, and peace of mind. And you've already had heard the fabulous intro for Carol. And I'm really excited to just get right into You Will Own Nothing, right? Does that make you think a little bit, Carol? I'm extremely honored and privileged to have you here today. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. And it's interesting. When I first heard You Will Own Nothing, probably like you, Chris, or some of the other people, you hear it and you're like, oh, somebody must have misheard that. It couldn't possibly be what was said. It certainly couldn't be coming out of the World Economic Forum. I mean, they're connected with the political elites and the business elite. There's no way they would be advocating for the end of property rights because we know that property and ownership leads to prosperity and wealth. So, of course, then I dug into the research and went, okay, yeah. It's, I mean, their, their version is actually, you'll own nothing with an apostrophe. But yes, it's, um, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. And I think for anybody who's a student of history, people who didn't have access to property and the property rights to protect them have not only been um, not free, but also not happy. I'm definitely not happy for sure. You know, why do you say we are in World War F? <laughs> well, I think what people think about, um, you know, the next World War, they're thinking about potentially World War Three, who are all the, um, you know, the players. And, and I cheekily say that we're actually heading into World War F, which is a global war where you are effed. And uh, I, I say that, you know, with, with somewhat um, of a humorous tone, but it's actually not funny at all. Mm. We are really on this precipice of a new financial world order, something that also is not a conspiracy theory. If you go back through history, every financial empire has its cycle. We're about 80 years in. The British's was about 100 years. It was the Dutch before then. You know, there, there is this kind of predictable cycle. And even President Biden is talking to the business roundtable last year about the new world order. So this is something that's happening. And when I started digging into all of this and connecting the dots, when you normally think about war, it's about one 
region or one country looking to conquer another country and their people and potentially their wealth. In our own case, you know, the calls coming from inside the house. In, in many cases, it is the American government that is coming to conquer our wealth. And unfortunately, there are a slew of bad actors, um, allies, you know, other elite who see this happening. They are jockeying to put themselves in position to make sure they come out on top and they can allocate the resources and make sure that they and their friends own everything. And if that happens, you own nothing and you are. The F in World War F, basically. Now I get the now I get the <laughs> World War F. It totally, totally makes sense. So in what ways are your opportunities going to be challenged with all of this? So if you think about the ways that they're coming at us, you know, whether it's through social credit, whether it's through ESG, whether it's through central bank digital currencies, whether it's big tech and and kind of how these things all link together. They're coming, you know, for your social standing in many ways. We saw this with COVID or with people with wrong think and, and whatnot. If you're not in the current thing, they want to make you an outcast. They want to limit your social standing, which limits your financial opportunities. In some cases, that also translates to coming for your job or your possible vocation. We had lots of people who have been laid off, again, because of COVID or because of cancel culture or whatnot. And the third way is a much more direct way. It's the actual coming for your assets. You know, it is um, much more genteel to legally plunder from your own citizens than it is apparently to go to war with somebody else. And again, all of these things which would have sounded completely insane 10 years ago, right? Even even to me, like if you would have told me this 10 years ago, said, well, I don't know, it seems like a stretch. Given what we've lived through over the last three years and the broader set of things that are going on with the end of cycle sort of backdrop, um, this is a very real, re realistic scenario. It's something that has happened where there is the setup for even more of it to happen and everything that I talk about is sourced you know, from the people who are saying it and major mainstream media. I mean, these are people who are saying the quiet part aloud. This is no longer conspiracy. Conspiracy happens to be reality today. It, you know, three years ago, a financial new world, it sounded like a conspiracy. Insane. It's not. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows it now. It's not like woo woo, right? As I said, just go go to the White House's website, look up remarks from, from President Biden, March 21st, 2022, to the Business Roundtable. He literally says there is going to be a new world order. He talks about the economic ones that happen every three or four generations. And then, of course, he says, well, we have to lead it. Now, we don't know who we is. I'm sure him and his cronies would like to, to lead it. I'm pretty sure I'm not included in that way. Maybe you are, Chris. I don't know. Uh, but no. but, but these, these, again, these are things that are being said. Like, do you think President Biden is a conspiracy theorist if you're, you're on the other side of this? No, he's just telling you what everybody else is talking about. So again, you can find this on the White House's website. Exactly. So, okay, so what does this new financial world order mean for Americans? 
It's not a great thing. I mean, we've all been very blessed to live through a period of abundance and prosperity. And as I put myself in the shoes of you know, somebody who might have been British during their financial cycle or someone who may have been Dutch during their financial cycle as the, the, the holder of the world's reserve currency, it was probably difficult for them to imagine that things would be different. And I think it's very challenging for people in the U.S., even though we have seen some things go sideways, you know, we still are at that point of privilege on a relative basis to the rest of the world. And so it's hard to imagine a scenario where we're not the main global reserve currency where there's a, a mix going on, where your your dollar buys even less than it does today, where you may not have access to medicines or critical components of things that you need. And worst case scenario, it could be an actual physical war, because one thing that you note throughout history is that not every war brings about a new financial world order. But every major new financial world order has been preceded by war. So there are a lot of things that threaten our security from an economic standpoint, our physical security, our national security. And unfortunately, if we don't get on the bandwagon and we don't get people to change the way that they're thinking about things, um, even if we can't stop the macro environment, we can change things on a personal basis and set ourselves up to be more prosperous and to hold on to that American dream as much as possible as the global world order shifts. That's it right now. And it's up to us. And, you know, it was a rumor the last few years is sort of like you hear these different things like social credit. What in the heck does that mean to the new financial world order? It's kind of scary, right? Yeah, it's, um, you know, if you look at, you know, just some of the the big names in pop culture, Joe Rogan or Dave Chappelle in comedy or even Ellen DeGeneres, who lost her show, there is this focus, as I talked about, the different levels of opportunity of coming at, after your access to it. And it started out as cancel culture, but that easily morphs into a formal system. If you are in China, you are living under a formal social credit system. It's called SCS or SOCS. And while it's different depending on where in China you are, and they still haven't quite formalized it, like on a a national basis, some places use letter grades, some places use numbers, you know, you get points for doing the good things and you get black marks for doing the bad things. And you might find your face up on a billboard as an untrustworthy person. And again, we'll go, oh, well, it could never happen here, but it happens all the time. It happens. People are dragged across social media. It happened during COVID. It happened with people who didn't want to take the vaccine. So again, there's a very short distance between what's happening in China and what's happened here. And so the idea of oh, this could happen is somewhat silly. And then having the technology and further tools to be able to enforce that, um, you know, some of the things that I talk about in my book are not only some of the collection tools, but actual monetary tools, things like central bank digital currencies or CBDCs, which give the government more and more control over what's said and, and what happened are real. I mean, we've seen the government work with social media to deplatform people. People by big tech have been um, not allowed to 
use payment systems because, you know, they don't think the way that those folks do. That never happened before. We have telephones. Nobody said, I don't like what you're saying on the telephone, Chris. I'm sorry, you can't use the phone. It's just, it, it's a, a different uh, scenario that we're going into. So again, it's about thinking about all of these things, understanding how they tie together, empowering yourself with that knowledge, and then doing everything we can to fight back. You know, you're so right. And we've been so blessed and maybe taken a lot of it for granted, right? That for sure. For sure. A lot of this kind of slipped by, like all of a sudden, well, only in the last three years, it's sort of like, what? It's moving so fast. It so is. For people to be aware, who are these bad actors fighting in this World War F? <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of break them down into three groups. So one of them is obviously the government and what I call government-related entities. So all of the agencies, the Federal Reserve, which we could have a, a spirited argument on whether that's actually part of the government or not. I'll let you read the details of the book, but you know it's kind of that that splice. Then it's what I call sort of the 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 elite bad actors. Everybody from the World Economic Forum to the UN and all of their agencies, along with big businesses and a lot of other profiteers that go along with them. And then there's big tech, which is just big tech. And all of them have their own different reasons for doing it. But at the end of the day, it's about kind of basics of human nature. It's about power and it's about greed and it's about seeing what's ahead and being out in front of it. That's it. Right. You know, the bad actors or all these players, it just, it's like everybody, they're all coming out. And I've heard it said, well, this is not a recession. This is not a depression. This is a currency debasement, right? And what has happened in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, currency debasement is real. The best way to explain it to people is to go back to the Roman Empire because they were really the OGs of currency debasement. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll take one of the coins that I designed. I designed this coin uh, or round. I'm not allowed to call it a coin. Round. But basically, you know, they had for a very long time, hundreds of years in the Roman Empire, stable money, and they had coins called denariuses. They were made out of silver, and they had about 95% silver content. And they knew that having stable money was critical to the stability of the Roman Empire. Well, then Nero comes along. Everybody knows Nero who fiddled while Rome burned. Well, he also debased the currency. And what he would do is he would call in all of the, the rounds, the, their coins in, in circulation, and he would do one of two things. And the people who followed him would do one of two things. Either they would melt them down and make them smaller, so instead of one that's this big, maybe you get one that's three quarters as big and then siphon off that extra silver to pay himself and to pay for war and all that kind of stuff. Or they would replace some of the silver with a less valuable metal. And so by the time <laughs> this cycled through post Nero, what was 95% silver was now 0.5% silver. Inflation was like a thousand percent and, you know, basically helped lead to the collapse of the Roman Empire. And so the same thing has been happening with the U.S. dollar, where they are, in effect, 
doing the same thing. They are taking what that value is and shrinking it and shrinking it. So you still have something that is called a dollar, but it buys you less and less. And so, you know, you may think that, you know, X amount of money affords you a certain lifestyle, but, you know, that's very different than the lifestyle it afforded you 20 years ago. And that's because what they've been doing with the currency. And I think that's one of the concepts that a lot of people can't get their head wrapped around and it's intentional. It's, a, it's intentional when you put out, hey, we're going to give you a stimulus check and everyone goes, I want a stimulus check. You go, no, you're going to end up with massive inflation, which of course we did. And they don't understand that there's a cost to getting that money because it's a proxy for productivity. That You can't just make it up. <laughs> Otherwise, each one of those notes are worth less. So People having to sort of understand that and also the trajectory that the U.S. is on, it's not like we're curtailing spending. It's not like we're not running up more debts. It's not like we have anybody who wants to buy that debt. I mean, China, one of the biggest holders, is actually doing the opposite. They're shedding their treasury holdings. So who's the person or the entity that's left over who's going to buy the debt? It's the Federal Reserve. And that means money from nowhere. They make fake currency, they debase it, and we end up in this cycle of you know long-term inflation and God forbid, but very potentially hyperinflation. And I think that's one of the things that people really need to be keeping an eye on. Absolutely. And obviously, this is a setup, right, for CBDC. Yes. So central bank digital currency, when we talk about things like social credit and we're saying, well, you know, how do you enforce that? Well, what if the Federal Reserve and the government could control your currency? Not in the way that they do now, but literally every dollar you have, every coin you have has an equivalent of a microchip, but on a digital scale. So imagine they could, every time you go to pay for something, they know and they decide based on social credit whether or not you can pay. Hey, we don't want you to eat as much beef. Carol, you've eaten too many burgers this month. I'm sorry for the good of the planet as well as your waistline. We're just going to cut that off. Or we don't like what you posted on Facebook. So I'm sorry, we're not going to give you the money. Or it could be the opposite. Hey, we're going to give you four of these digital dollars for every one of your regular dollars. Isn't that great? No, it debases the currency. Or they could say, we're going to give you some currency and you can only spend it at these approved retailers, which happen to be our friends. So it's the complete loss of agency, privacy, and having the government up in everything that you do and the level of control that fits in with all of this jockeying for resources, making you compliant, and really putting what you have worked for um, at risk. And this is something, again, sounds crazy, but they just did a pilot program with major financial institutions. The G7 countries just came out with their retail principles, 13 of them. So you don't come out with things like, here are my principles, and we're going to all align on these for something that you aren't really seriously considering. And you know, it's basically the end of freedom as we know it, if that's what they end up doing. And so again, the, these are the things you have to kind of keep an eye on to be able to figure out what am I going to plan for and what am I going to do if this happens and when it happens. Because again, I think it's more of a when than an if. 
and we don't know the duration, right? We I don't have that. I, I know the trajectory, but I can't tell you when. I wish I could tell you when, but I can't right. tell you when. Right. Well, we got to do another show. I've heard ever since I've been born about these times, right? Wars, rumors of wars, and then one world and all of it. And now it's a, like, it's later than I thought it was. That's hitting me shocking. And so these CBDCs, they create the ultimate too big to fail scenario, right? They do, because if you think about um, hackers and bad actors, if we have digital currency and it's decentralized and there are lots of different places where you could get your digital currency from, lots of different actors, there could be a hacking event in one area or a couple of areas, but it doesn't bring down the whole system. If everything is centralized within the Federal Reserve, that's it. That's the fail safe. And so if a bad actor wanted to, you know, attack that and were able to, and there's lots of sophisticated computing that's coming out, you know, quantum computing and whatnot that hasn't come about yet, but, you know, knocking on the door, they could bring the entire financial system to a grinding halt. And so it really that centralization, in addition to the, the privacy and freedom issues, also creates a real security issue. And I'm sure that um, there are lots of nations out there, as well as just, you know, kids in their basements who say this is the ultimate target and that's going to be their full focus 24-7. Right, right. Absolutely. I think that's it. And I wanted to ask you, how is big tech upending property rights? It's just like everything is going bye-bye here, right? <laughs> so if you think about previous industrial revolutions, they really allowed for people to own more property and to transmit it what's considered to be horizontally. So not father to son via inheritance, but person to person via trade. And all of the technological advances that we've seen for decades, if not you know, hundreds of years, have allowed us to do that and, and created efficiencies. And so now we have the opportunity to own more things and accumulate more wealth. Well, what's happened in this digital age is that big tech now sees everything as a service or a subscription, including, by the way, your life. They want to take your life and they want to rent it back to you. So, you know, you may have a cell phone or two, but what is it that you actually own? Like I own some glass and some microchips and, and whatnot. But I don't own the operating system. I don't own the email system. I don't own my social media accounts. I don't own the online payment systems. And so really everything that they're collecting a fee from in some way or another or getting advertising revenue, they've trained us for non-ownership. You know, if you have kids or grandkids who play video games, they may go into a virtual world and you know buy their avatar sneakers and a car. They don't actually own these things. They can't take them even to another digital world. It's you know specific to the game. So what are we actually owning, and how do we participate in that wealth creation? And big tech has really done a, a phenomenal job in this digital age of making sure that they are getting very wealthy, but taking more and more property rights away from us. And by the way, also becoming sort of a de facto government in terms of the things that the government typically would protect, you know, speech and censorship and property rights and the like. 
Um, some of these tech companies are bigger than many of our neighboring countries in terms of number of users or their market value versus countries' GDPs. But at the same time, you know, they are not operating with a constitution. They're operating with the terms of service agreement of which you have no choice other to subscribe to. Or in many cases, you know, you don't have choices to opt out. You go back to the phone. You know, there are two operating systems that cover 99 percent of the users on the planet. Android, which is owned by Alphabet slash Google and iOS, which is owned by Apple. So what what's my what's my choice? How where's my capitalism? How do I opt out of this? And you know, for those people who are diehard, you know, kind of center of the spectrum, you know, kind of libertarianish folks like myself, that you know, we don't really like government intervention, we like private companies to be able to do what they want to do, that's great if there's competition. But if there's no competition, there's no capitalism either. What a great explanation. Wow. That was fabulous. And what's this de facto government? I didn't vote for you guys. I mean, it's that right. It's imposed upon you. And there's no court system, right? There's no way to, if you do something wrong or they say you did something wrong, you can't adjudicate it. You can't make amends. You can't get back in. Like you get kicked off of a platform. It may be for the rest of your life. You're 24 years old. Yeah. You you know, the, the next 60 to 80 years, you just can't use the internet. Like it's yeah. it's insanity. It's insanity. It's insanity. You don't even know why. What did I do? Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and I'm hearing it on different levels. I know they did the test in all the different, the CBDC. And now some are saying they're getting rid of it. Some of the, the ESG. What is ESG? Tell us about it. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to tell you what ESG is, but since they keep changing the definition of it, it's technically environmental, social, and corporate governance, which you know I equate basically to business social credit. It is a bunch of elite political folks and the like who want their whims to be catered to, and they are basically bullying corporations into doing it. Otherwise, they're withholding investment dollars. And so it's one of those things that sounds really good in principle, right? Oh, yes, I, you know, I you know, I want to make sure I'm a good environmental steward. Yeah, okay, fine. You know, diversity and inclusion is a good thing. Absolutely. Having some diversity helps your business. You want to have good corporate governance. Of course, you don't want to do business with horrible companies. But by forcing it, there are sort of two issues that have come out. One is just the like the straight up scam <laughs> that everybody's slapping an ESG label on it. It's called greenwashing and saying I'm ESG and they're trying to collect extra fees or consulting or whatever just for being a part of it. So that's costly to you because you're paying for something that doesn't really exist. The scarier part is how they're redirecting resources. And in our current scenario, something fossil fuels, which is obviously very important to not only our country, but to the state of the world right now. And we are, you know, as a globe, very underinvested in terms of, I think Saudi Arabia said something like $12.1 trillion over the next few decades that, you know, they're directing resources and saying, well, we're not going to give you investment capital if you're investing in fossil fuels or if you're supporting these companies. And it's directing resources away from things we need. And it's also hurting your return on investment because the Department of Labor came out with a rule. If you've got a retirement plan that's managed, instead of the person in charge being a fiduciary and saying, we're going to evaluate these investments based on what is best for you as a shareholder, 
And based on the investment returns you can get, they've now said, oh, well, you can consider ESG. So now they're subverting your opportunity to create wealth. Does this sound familiar? You will own nothing to push their political agenda. And again, this is not conspiratorial. Every public company right now has ESG plastered somewhere on their website. And I've talked to CEOs of publicly traded companies and other C-suite people. They have no idea what it means. They don't know where it came from. Many of them haven't heard of the World Economic Forum, let alone Klaus Schwab. So just being the useful idiots and entrenching this into society without understanding what it is that they're doing. And that's what makes it so dangerous. Uh, it's And the barriers that it's going to create for people, wealth, right? And take a deep breath. <laughs> Am I scared? Like, is, is this like super depressing? Do we need to have like a cry right now? Because um, this is a lot to take it in. Is. It is. Yeah. And it's looking at, you know, dec- decades of my life, how fast it's changed. It almost makes me glad that my parents aren't here because they'd have a heart attack on this. I say, right? I say this all the time. I say this all the time. My, my poor father, who was the American dream. My father was an electrician. You know, he saved, he scrimped. I was the first person in my family to go to college. You know, he saw this like great progression and loved America. And, you know, that's why I fight so hard to preserve the American dream for everyone else, because it's shifting so rapidly and it's we're losing control on what everybody on the planet comes here in search of. And we cannot let that die. No, it God did bless America, you guys. He did. He did. Amen. <laughs> really true. And I think, you know, it's just here we go again. And one of these hard notes, but and no one really had seen it. Talked about a lot what happened in Sri Lanka with the ESG as a, their little test sample nightmare, right? Yeah, so Sri Lanka was going to be the model ESG country, and um, they would have been doing incredible. You know, they had this decade where they had doubled, almost doubled their GDP and their GDP per capita, and their middle class was growing and it was thriving. And then all of a sudden, the ESG folks got their tentacles in there, and you start seeing the prime ministers and people who are connected putting out speeches about how we're going to be you know, this this model ESG country and how we're going to have climate justice and all these kinds of things. I'm assuming in part influenced by the World Bank and some of the people and some of the financing opportunities that were available to them. So lots of people's attention. BlackRock, whose name pops up a lot here, is advocating for them. So what happened was a few years ago when one of the... um, gentleman from Sri Lanka was campaigning for president, he said, I'm going to do something about this. And first he tried to nationalize some of the farmland that didn't go over so well with the farmers. So he said, okay, we're just going to ban chemical fertilizers. You just can't use them anymore. And, you know, on the back of COVID and, you know, some things that had happened, this ended up really creating a major issue for the country. They went from you know being this country on the rise to actually having a food crisis for the first time in modern history. And you know, if you followed the news, you know the devolution that happened there. They ran the president out of the country. You know, people died waiting in line for food and fuel. It was just an absolute complete implosion. And you know, they went from having this this massive surplus of different kinds of staples to spending hundreds of millions of dollars 
having to import them to have any food. So just a complete reversal of fortune. But hey, they had a really good environmental index score with 98.1, which I, I guess is, you know, much more important than if you can have food or, you know, electricity or things like this. And this is the silliness of this. And frankly, that the part that people should be very angry about, I mean, they're messing with people's ability to live, their food supply, their ability to flourish for this nonsense. And unfortunately, Sri Lanka learned the hard way. And the Netherlands is also going through a a similar situation where you're getting the farmers protests. Their PM um, is a member of the World Economic Forum. He's part of the Food Action Alliance with the World Economic Forum, where they want to reshape the way that we think about food. And, you know, how's that done? I mean, it's just, it's like, if you you start like connecting all of these dots, you just end up one big ball in the middle because it's the same names that come up over and over again. And again, you know, a couple of times I'll give you that it's a coincidence, but when it happens over and over and over again, that's a trend. That's not a coincidence. That's it. That's intentional. Intentional. That's it. Yeah. So now back to the home front, right? (laughs) Because it is global. It's happening everywhere. It isn't just here, but we see it all over. But now the American dream housing is under fire. And I heard all these interest rate things too, just recently in the last couple yeah. of years. But. The biggest issue with how, well, there are a couple of issues with housing. One of them is what's been done by the Fed. So Fed policy has completely distorted the housing market. It's created so much capital that it inflated the cost of housing, but it also inflated your personal expenditure. So the people who owned assets did very well. They got very wealthy people who are asset holders, the people who weren't didn't and didn't have the, the money. So this created a lot of wealth disparity. But the other thing that cheap and available capital did was it said to the people on Wall Street, wow, we have like all this really low cost debt. It's underneath the real cost of inflation, basically it doesn't cost us anything. Um, what are we going to do with it? Because stocks have gotten really high, again, asset bubbles, uh, all the things that we invest in have gotten really high. Where else can we go? And some goes, well, we can buy houses. Oh, that's interesting. So, you know, before 2010, there was no such thing as institutional investors competing with me or you or your grandma for an individual house. And now you've got hundreds and thousands of houses that are being snapped up by Wall Street. Some of these companies, which, by the way, aren't even domiciled in the United States. And so, you know, you have a a situation where things have been, you've been priced out and now you've got a competitor who's going to come in with all cash, who doesn't have to see the place at all. And, you know, I want you, Chris, and and your audience to really think about this. When we think about the American dream, what do we think about? We think about owning a house, your white house with your white picket fence or whatever it is. That is because that is the biggest driver of wealth for individuals across all groups, across all demos in the United States on a dollar basis. That is where most of the wealth is. And they are doing more and more things to keep you from owning a house and being able to have that wealth. And again, it's the same people who are all interconnected and behind it, the same people who are touting ESG. They want to be great social stewards 
but their social stewardship does not include you owning a home. And so, you know, it's one of those things we need to keep an eye on, as well as things like land and, and water rights, too. I mean, it's not just the house. It's all different kinds of things. Yes, yes, yes. Woo, that's like... <laughs> Everybody's got to pay attention in the thread of everything we're talking about is you'll own nothing. And you're hitting on every single chapter in this book. People got to read it because you've got the evidence here for people to pay attention. There are over 600 sources that I've become really tired of checking over and over again um, to make sure this information is right, because I knew it's going to be under a lot of scrutiny. And, um, you know, it already seems like there's some people who don't want people to read this. So this is why you need to read this. And each chapter, as you said, as we go along, deals with something different. I break things down in a way where you can really understand them, even if you're not an economics person and, you know, really know what's happening. So you can figure out which areas are most relevant to you. And then, of course, at the end, um, you know, have your plan of action, your, your battle plan. Because as I said, we're, we're in a world war here and we got to fight back. That's it. Counter-revolution. It is. And it's things that we can do, the war between good and evil. It really is what's playing out. But I'm curious, just back a little bit for that housing thing. Why would a university, I mean, I can kind of <laughs> understand a hedge fund, right? But why are they all buying all the land? I, I mean, I still don't. <laughs> well, you know, so I call, I, I joke around, I call Harvard a hedge fund masquerading as a university because they've got a $40 billion endowment. Um, lots of hedge funds would like to have that assets under management. And they're seeing the opportunities, whether it's Harvard, who bought up all different kinds of vineyards in California for the water rights underneath them, individual investors who are going up and buying farmland and, and timberland, and other investors who are looking at ways to financialize water, to create a trading market like we have for other commodities that will divert resources from the people who grow your food to somebody who's wealthy and has a pool in their backyard and, you know, Beverly Hills or whatnot, this is happening. And they're all seeing this again as a way to make money, as a way to control the resources. And when I tell you, like, why would Harvard, you know, buy water rights? Well, <laughs> again, start connecting out the dots. And, you know, whether you think it's just because it's a great financial opportunity or something more. Either way, it doesn't work out well for you. When you have the political elites and Wall Street and you know a bunch of profiteers and bad actors all fighting over your house, land that's productive, where you get your food from, water that you need to live, and you know they're all trying to figure out ways to financialize and fight over it. And then you're over here, like who's the loser in that equation? It's not going to be the people over here. So. Again, important things and shocking things. I mean, this this one of the things when I tell people, like Harvard's buying up water rights, like it's like okay, <laughs> what? Yeah. And uh, yeah. you know, re real things sourced from you know entities like the Wall Street Journal. Okay, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so why why is it that you think college is actually keeping young Americans from creating wealth? So college has morphed, you know, now that the United States government has nationalized a large part 
of the college lending scenario, the price of college has just continued to rise. It's gone up exponentially, both in terms of, you know, I think it's five times GDP and eight times wages, or maybe it's eight times GDP, but whatever it is, five and eight times GDP and wages one way or another, but whatever it is, it's an insane amount because you have a scenario where you have no underwriting process. You're giving the same degree, the same amount of money. It doesn't matter if you're studying engineering or underwater basket weaving, you know, the Ivy League school or whatever, like you, you qualify for the same amount of money. There's no underwriting. There's no return on investment evaluation, the colleges have no skin in the game. So for them, it's just been a cash bonanza. And all this has done is just transfer wealth from young people, like teenagers, to colleges and universities who now have endowments who can go and buy up the water, right? So again, these you're starting to see how, how all of this gets connected. And you know, it used to be that you would say, okay, well, I can earn a return on investments. And there are some places where you probably still can, but it's becoming more and more difficult. And, you know, people are going to college, not for lifelong learning, they're going for an accreditation and because they want to be able to improve their chances, but because they're saddled with debt, they don't have an opportunity to get out of debt and start taking down money that they can use to invest elsewhere, let alone buy a house, doing whatever. So now we've saddled them with money at the expenses of the universities, and it's keeping them from all of these important life events and the ability to build wealth. So when you hear about the data and you go, oh, well, you're going to make more money if you have a college degree, you never talk about it on a return on investment basis. What about the wealth creation opportunities? Because that's what matters. So if you have to pay down debt and it's going to take you 30 years to pay down debt and you can't buy a house and the other person who didn't go to college can, like who, whose outcome is better? Like, I don't care that maybe this person made $3,000 more a year. It's irrelevant. They're saddled with debt and non-productive debts that, that is not enhancing their return. So the equation has been shifted. And one of the interesting data points I found in doing my research is that on an inflation adjusted basis, so not just inflated, but adjusting for inflation, millennials actually earn more at age 40 than the boomers did and that Gen X did. But it's because of the inflation of assets and because of the debts they have that they aren't able to accumulate wealth. So the wealth that they've accumulated, including real estate, is a small fraction of what those other generations were able to do beforehand. And so these young kids, they know something is wrong, but they can't identify that these are the causes of it. And we got to make them whip smarter so that they're making better decisions and that they're helping to enact the change because otherwise it's just money that's going to be continue to be siphoned away from them. And really they will be those generations that own nothing. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's such good points. That's oh, brilliant. Are you so excited to read the book, Chris? <laughs> I know, I know. I got, I got, I've got an audio version, so I can, you know, listen while I'm doing. You got to get the hard copy. We're talking about owning something. That's I'm the whole thing. Own the hard copy. It's, it's going to be the only book that like does better in hard copy than in digital because I want to train people yes, to yes. actually own tangible things. Because when right. you put that on on the the electronic version, they can take that away from you, and you need that book. <laughs> I got my emails 
saying it's almost ready. You know, it should be coming soon. No, I'm on it. I'm on it. I want an autograph <laughs> copy, of course. <laughs> but no, absolutely everybody that listens to this show, we might as well have a permanent link for this book because it's just like, this is foundational. You know, I, I'm kind of on the the end of the conversation where I show people how to protect their assets and real basic things, but your strategies and the way that you talk it and put it together intellectually with, with facts, not just woo woo stuff. It's just really a blessing for people. Thank yeah. you. I mean, I, I, I want to say, I think that one of the challenges this movement has had is that the people who found out about this on the earlier side, some of them are crazy. And so you know, there aren't a lot of rational champions for these kinds of ideas. And so I think it's really important to have people to be able to do this. And and I've written other books that I think are very important, but this is like my life's work. This is probably the most important thing I will ever write. And certainly one of the most important things people will ever read, because this is going to be looked back on as a turning point in our financial empire and people in history are going to be able to see this with the clarity that I'm going to give you and you're going to be able to tie together. Absolutely. And you know, I'm champion. I'm here and I'm going to broadcast this out. I think I'd like to run this through, you know, all the channels that we can so people can hear because it's moving so fast. Just, just a few more notes and then we'll wrap up here, but the wealth that's going to pass down through inheritance. So I've created over 6,000 living trusts. I'm an LDA in California. Love it. Right. And show people how to do really simple. And so are you worried about this? What's going to be happening with what's being passed down to in our, when I, we're living our legacy, but then our yeah. legacy that we leave behind. I am. So it's, it's staggering the amount of wealth that's going to be passed down. Um, I was blown away by these numbers. 84.4 trillion is going to be inherited over the next 20 some odd years. And it's, you know, that this was as of 2021. So some of that's probably started, but like 27% of all wealth in this country is owned by people who are 70 years of age and, and over. And so there's a massive voluntary transmission of wealth that's going to happen if they let us have it happen. And so given the amount of debt that the government has, given the unfunded liabilities, which I think is even a bigger issue one of the sources showed that there was about 129 plus trillion dollars in unfunded liabilities with, you know, just kind of the basics, not to mention what's ever happening at state pension levels and, and so on and so forth. That's really tempting for the government to get their hands on because debt and power are at odds with each other, as we've kind of been noticing. And so for them to be able to, to get more wealth I think is huge. And what they're going to do and what they have been doing, if you've been paying attention, is going, we need to create these capital gains taxes and wealth taxes and unrealized gains taxes and all these kinds of things that are trying to get at wealth. An easy one for them might be the inheritance tax. And they're going to sell this as, oh, we're just going to do it for the wealthy. And this is just going to be for the big guys. But if you look at the big guys, they don't have enough wealth. It's the bulk of the wealth that they're after. And so that means you. So I'm going to give you a plug and say, you know, do your trust, do your, your planning, 
start to do things like gifting during your lifetime. And, you know, we don't know, you may not be grandfathered in, but there has been precedence before that sometimes when they make changes, if you have the trust already set up or whatnot, that that's grandfathered in, they're just going to assume that people don't do the planning because it seems scary and it's not a fun thing to think about. And that's going to create vulnerability for your wealth. So I think this is a really important action step that you could take that if you have created wealth for your family and a legacy that do the planning to do everything you can to protect it and make sure you oppose anything that they tell you is just going to be for those billionaires. Because guess what? Guess who has really good lawyers and trusts and different kinds of planners who aren't going to be subject to any of this? The billionaires and the multimillionaires and whatnot. But you, on the other hand, are a different story. And they're going to end up bringing that down over time, just like with every other government creep that's out there. It's always the middle and working class who end up paying the price. So this is an area where there's a lot of money to be owned and owned in a way that's voluntary. And we need to preserve that you know, for, for your legacy. Amen. That's it. Yeah. Everything you're saying is absolutely true. Okay. So how does the average American be able to reclaim the American dream? There are a lot of behaviors um, that you can shift. And I think it's about, because this is very overwhelming, and I would understand somebody going, like, there's a financial world order shifting. Like, what am I going to do? But you can prepare. If you have that knowledge, you can say, okay, I know what's going to likely to happen. And I can make sure to diversify myself because I don't know the time frame. And so if it takes a while, I want to be able to participate in the upside. But if things go south, I want to be able to protect myself for the downside. So I think there's financial things that you can do, you know, as we talked about with trusts, things like you know, putting a portion of your portfolio into alternative hard assets, things like precious metals and the land. I mean, the wealthy people are all buying land and water rights. That gives me a cue. Right. Like if they're doing that, that seems like that might be something good to do. So, you know, think through those kinds of things. If you can't lick them, you know, join them until you can. And then there are also just behavioral things that you can do, whether it's, you know, in terms of your communities, fortifying yourself and making sure that you have backup resources if things go wrong and people in your circle that if social credit comes for you, that they're going to go like, we don't care. Um, making sure that if there are opportunities that come up where they're trying to push through a CBDC, that you're getting groups and you're, you're, you know, protesting. I mean, this is like people protest over all kinds of stupid stuff. This is like taking away your freedom. Like I need everybody's butt in Washington protesting peacefully, of course, these kinds of things, but you have to kind of rejigger the way that you approach your life, both from a financial and behavioral standpoint And the underlying message is they want you to own nothing, but I want you to own everything. And I think that's the most important thing is that you may have to lean out of frivolous spending and spend more time on investing and rethinking how you invest so that you do have that differentiated portfolio so that when something does happen, you've at least created some level of protection for yourself against what's ahead in that unknown time frame. You're singing my song. That's just <laughs> it right there. Carol, this has been fabulous. Just tell everybody again how to get your book, You Will Own Nothing. The You Will Own Nothing is available basically anywhere you get a book. As I said, 
I'd like for you to get a hard copy so that you can actually start with this behavior on it. Um, but I'd be happy for you to just listen to it if that's your preferred way of, of doing it as well. It's important. Um, it's available at Amazon, which is great for rankings. It's available at Bookshop, which supports small businesses. It's available from whoever your local retailer is. So like anywhere that you can get a book, it is coming out this summer, but the pre-orders are going hot right now. You want to be able to have that in your hands the day of release and learn this as quickly as possible. So please support with a pre-order and tell everyone you know, because there's a lot of information in here that 95 plus percent of the population has no idea about. And so the more people that we empower, because again, they, they, they know what's wrong. They just can't identify why. And if we can get more people to connect those dots, we're going to have power individually, but together to be able to make a shift and a change and to hang on to that American dream. This book is everybody's got to have it. I've got to, I'm figuring out how, you know, I can put it in the show or have it as a, you know, a gift or something, because it really says it's the foundation of what I talk about all the time, but yeah. with the wisdom and the proof of what's happening. And Carol Roth, you have other books too, but everybody should go to your site, <laughs> carolroth.com, right? And we will, if you allow it, we'll do this again. We'll drill down more and just get this out however we can. And again, I want to really thank you for being here. Well, I appreciate your time. I appreciate everybody who's listening. And, you know, we can't do this as individuals. Just It can't just be me saying this. It can't just be Glenn Beck saying this. It can't just be like, we need everybody. So now you, you've got this information and you're spreading it and you're listening to it. And we all need to be conduits to carry this information out there. I'm happy to have done the work and the, the heavy lifting, the research to make it easy for you. But we've had too many generations of people who sat by and not taken action that have got us to this point. And it's moving fast, guys. So we, we got to do something. Yes. And when you get your book, you read the book and then you share it and you keep passing it on. So this is a pass along book. You read it, you get the goodies and then keep passing it. And buy. you know, I want to buy a stack of them and have them available because it will shift you into action. Yeah. Right. Carol Roth. Thank you so much. Thank you. There's so much to learn about healthy money. I hope today's discussion brings you one step closer to securing and protecting your future. So you can get started on the right foot, go to meetwithchrismeller.com and schedule your free financial fitness strategy session. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to Money 911 so you don't miss our next episode, which includes health, wealth, and peace of mind.